Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'd be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, so that is always greatly appreciated. In this week's show, we're going to do a follow-up to last week's episode where we were recapping the 2021 election results in Virginia and New Jersey. Last week, we were just talking about, you know, what would the ramifications be for that and what that would be for any potential upcoming votes in Congress. So now we have results in those elections. We're going to go over those a little bit, sort of like we did in the in the newsletter, and then talk through the infrastructure vote that happened this last week and sort of look at that vote through the lens of the elections and how these the the Virginia and New Jersey elections are going to have an impact not just on that vote but they're going to have ramifications down the road and into 2022. So that's the agenda for this week's show so we can jump right in. So the the two big races Really, I mean, last week I talked about Virginia, and I, that was the race I talked about a lot. But there ended up being two big races, and that's because there was just a large move to Republicans across the board, across the United States, in just about every conceivable way you could have imagined. There was just massive swing, again, both against Democrats and towards Republicans. And the thing about this election is, in past midterms, you would have heard people talk about how low turnout always benefited Republicans. And if turn- turnout was ever high, that would benefit Democrats. Well, that narrative has been killed multiple times over, but it was particularly killed in this one, where turnout was higher. You saw people like Terry McAuliffe in Virginia and Phil Murphy in New Jersey. You, you saw them get more votes than they had in previous instances, but the contests were much narrower. And in the case of Virginia, you had Glenn Youngkin win on the Republican side, and you had Murphy narrowly winning in New Jersey for Democrats. And so this was a seismic shift signaling that a much larger wave is coming for, potentially at least, for the 2022 midterms. There's really no good news at all. If you're a Democrat, there is no way to look at those elections and say, oh, yeah, that's a good thing. And I saw some of those takes trying to take hold. Uh, the White House tried to spin some of them. Ron Klain was <laughs> tweeting his usual and liking stuff. But there's really no way to spin those results as anything other than a a massive rejection not, I mean, these are state elections, but there was a national tinge because the movement was so uniform across the board. Uh, this was a uniform swing in one direction, which signals a national mood shift away from Democrats. So that's the only way you could look at it. And, and the reason is, in 2020, so just a year ago, this time last year, Joe Biden won a state like Virginia. He won it by 10 he won a state like New Jersey by 16. 
well, in Virginia, that you know, Democrats win that by ten last time. Glenn Youngkin wins, comes in and wins by two point three points. Straight up, that's you know, your uh, that's about a twelve point swing, a little bit more than that, but it's about twelve points in Republicans' favor. In New Jersey, you go from Biden plus sixteen, massive win there, sixteen points, to only the Democrats only winning by around two two and a half points. That's a fourteen point swing. In Republican favor. In places like Buffalo, in New York, you had a socialist losing in that race to much more conservative, moderate candidates. There's a Republican who won a, 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 a city attorney race in the city of Seattle. Seattle. And the person that she was running against, the Democrat on that side, calls himself a police abolitionist. Person, I think we're talking beyond defunding the police here, and a person uses phrases like police abolition. And the Republican won. The the effort in Minneapolis, the effort to, you know, get rid of their police force there, to go all the way through with it, that failed. In New York, you have Eric Adams winning there, that race, and he calls himself openly a conservative on issues of crime. So I you know. There's just no way to spin this other than a complete and total rejection. And one of the things, you, you know, if you were watching like a CNN or an MSNBC, one of the ways they were spinning it was like, oh, look at these, some of these progressive candidates. They're winning in some of these city mayoral races. And yeah, you could point to some, you know, city races in some cities where some Democrats won, but the margins were not where you would expect them to be. They were nowhere close where you would expect them to be. So this was just a complete and total shift towards Republicans. And the thing that makes this matter even more is that in 2020, and you know, you have Donald Trump losing in 2020. But after that, if you, once you really start looking up and down the races, up and down the board, Republicans gained houses, I mean, gained seats in the House. Uh, the Senate was left 50-50. They, Republicans should have kept the Senate, but they didn't. I do blame Donald Trump for that one. But you effectively have a divided government where Democrats did not, there were no, you know, coattails with Joe Biden in 2020. He won, and Republicans basically did well everywhere else. Uh, that's why in the newsletter I was pointing back to my analysis post-race and why I was so excited post-race, because even though Donald Trump won, Republicans had effectively picked up everything else and were setting themselves up for success for the next decade. And the returns on that setup in 2020 are beginning to come in now. So if you take, and the reason that this is, this is so important here uh, is that if you take you take the results of a place like Virginia or, or a place or like New Jersey, and you just say, let's just say the country shifts exactly like one of those two states. Let's say you have that uniform switch where everything is moving across there. Well, in Virginia, if you have a, a, you know, a general move in the country like Virginia, across the rest of the country, where you're talking about a 12-point swing, Republicans would be expected to pick up 41 seats in the House and four Senate seats. Just straight up, if you just took that kind of twist, you said, okay, uniform kind of twist where all these different demographic voting groups do the same thing they did in Virginia, you have a general same swing in the rest of the country, you're looking at a wipeout in the midterms. Now remember, Democrats only have 
about a four to five vote majority in the House. Republicans getting like 40 here would just wipe out Democrats in the House. Because it's basically, everything's evenly divided here. And if you hit a, get a wet red wave in one direction or the other, if either side gets a wave, things get out of kilter fast where one party has a large majority. So 40 seats is a very big victory for Republicans because it gives them a very large majority. So that's if you follow Virginia. If you just do a Virginia-type swing, 40-plus House seats, four Senate seats. Period. That's 12 points. If you get a New Jersey-type result, however, you're talking 16 points. I mean, 14 points there. You're talking Republicans picking up 50-plus House seats. 51, if you do use the exact results from New Jersey. So 51 House seats and six Senate seats. 51 in the House and six in the Senate. There's just no other way to look at these results and say, if this happens again, and, and they, you know, in order for Democrats to turn this around, they, they would have to have a miracle of the likes that we just have never seen before because that's, this is difficult to turn around here. So they need a miracle, and right now they're staring down the barrel of getting wiped out in 2022. That, that's basically the only thing you can look at here and say it's going to happen. Um, where, you know, the only thing that they're going to hold at the end of that is going to be the White House with Joe Biden in it. And that's going to be it. And it's not getting any better once we get past these elections and start looking at some of the new data coming in. So there were two, there have been two polls come in on the generic ballot. Now, the generic ballot, if you don't know it, is just you're asking people on a generic basis, who would you vote for, the Republican or the Democrat? So it's supposed to just sort of get you, if you put a garden variety Republican on the ballot and a garden variety Democrat on the ballot, who are people leaning to? Now, in the closing days of these 2021 races, the generic ballot had started narrowing up, and Democrats had a very narrow lead. And the thing you have to remember about the generic ballot is that Democrats usually have a built-in advantage here. You can usually pencil them in, if all things are equal, Democrats are probably going to have a three to five point lead in the generic ballot, just on average. Uh, they have some of these more populous states like California, New York, and so that's going to tip it in their favor, just on general averages. And that's just the way it is. Well, that, that going into the election, they only had about a one to three point. So we knew that this was closing fast. Well, there have been two polls since the elections were held in New Jersey and Virginia. And they're showing Republicans having, and one of them was a USA Today poll, and it had Republicans with an eight point generic ballot lead. And the other one was by Emerson, which had the Republicans leading by seven points. So, you know, you just average those two post ones together. You're looking at a seven and a half point lead in the generic ballot for Republicans. And I want you to think back for a second to 2010, which was when the Republicans won 63 House seats and picked up about six Senate seats. Big swing. The 2010 elections were a shellacking for Democrats and set up Republicans for success. Um, going into that race, Republicans only had a 6.2 lead in the generic ballot. Uh, they're already right now getting polls showing above that. So... This is what Democrats are staring at. They, they know right now that those election results are bad, and they know that the post-election results are not getting any better. 
because a lot of this is going to be tied to Joe Biden's approval rating. I saw a poll today, I think it was the USA Today one, that had um, Kamala Harris's approval rating. So she's the vice president. People shouldn't have any thoughts about the vice president. That's the, generally what you would expect. But Kamala Harris has a an approval rating as a vice president of 28% in that poll. Now, I haven't really been tracking any of the vice presidency stuff, but when you see something like that, 28%. Just astonishing. Uh, you should be able to just sort of boost yourself as a vice president because you're not doing anything, and she can't even manage that part. So all of the data for the elections coming out of here are just bad for Democrats. The worst part, though, and it does get worse, mind you, are the demographics of the election results. So uh, there were some exit polls out of Virginia, and admittedly exit polls are never a useful thing. Generally, they're, especially the early ones, are always going to be inaccurate. Uh, but until you have people do the analysis of the voter files in these states, this is all we've got. Um, one of them out of Virginia showed Republicans with an 11-point lead among Hispanic voters. Glenn Youngkin won them 55 to 44. Now, I want to put this into context here. Um, the best that Republicans generally do with Hispanic voters, outside of you know, some subcuban areas in Florida, but just in general, the Hispanic vote, and even in places like Texas, you would not expect them usually to crack any more than 40%. The national average, I think, is closer to 30 or 40. A majority lead that you're seeing here is a is noteworthy because it's not done. And it suggests much more movement happening happening underneath here. Uh, so I would really like to see some voter file analysis here um, just to find out where the demographics are heading here because this is some seismic stuff here. Um, if you get into some of the, the individual House of Delegates races in Virginia, uh, Republicans were winning races south of Richmond in some historically black districts, and that is also a seismic shift where you're seeing... Um, Republicans winning in minority counties, and this was happening in 2022, or 2020 as well, where Donald Trump was winning counties in deeply Hispanic areas of Texas along the Rio Grande Valley, um, and was just dominating in those valleys. And so uh, you're seeing a shift here, in, and that's partially why I got into talking about the emerging Democratic majority theory in, in the newsletter, something I like hitting over and over again because it's just been proven to be so inaccurate. Because built into that for Democrats was the assumption that people voted for them on the basis of race. That's just what they assumed was going to happen for the rest of the next several decades, and that is not playing out, not even in the slightest here. And we saw some of this in 2016. There was sort of a rebound back in 18. 2020 reasserted itself with these shifts back towards Republicans. And 2021 is saying that you're seeing Republicans become sort of this minority working class type of party where you have just working class voters on all sides, uh, you know, of all races, generally consolidating even tied one party. And it's not the Democratic one. Um, so that is a very interesting shift that's playing out here. Uh, just to give you some kind of, of, of an example of here of what happened immediately after those races, um, so the, the crystal ball analysis by, by Larry Sabato out of the University of Virginia Center of Politics, uh, very generally very good analysis comes out of him, although Larry has lost his mind as of late. 
It makes very little sense. But they released their new uh, prognostications for the Senate races in 2022, and they moved four Senate races towards Republicans. Three races went from lean Democratic to toss-ups, meaning things are moving in a more Republican manner. And one was moved from almost a surefire Democratic seat to a lean Democratic seat, showing a weakening grip that Democrats have over that one. So that was four there, and that was just their immediate change. Um, I think there are others because I think you're going to see some high-quality Republican candidates start jumping into the race here because they think they can win. Ultimately, I could, and I'm going to read off the states here that I think are online, it would not shock me if you saw competitive races in Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, New Hampshire, Maryland, and maybe even Vermont. Um, The ones that I'm throwing in here, uh, Maryland and Vermont, are not necessarily on the radars uh, of the crystal ball crowd. Um, They would acknowledge that Maryland could come online if if Larry Hogan, the Republican governor there, runs. People have been pitching Larry Hogan for a presidential run, and he will never win in a presidential field, but in a Senate field, in Maryland, he could do quite well. And the other one is Vermont, where there was a Republican governor there who is highly, highly popular, and it wouldn't shock me if you could if he could make some noise there. So you're talking about eight, maybe more states, six to eight states where Republicans can make some noise here. And if you're talking about a four, 12 to 14 point swing, um, that would be enough to flip a lot of these. It would make a state like a Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, those would become suddenly very easy to win. And they would also turn states like New Hampshire and Nevada from harder races into more winnable ones. And it could even make a a, a state like Maryland in play. So uh, that's what we're talking about here. A true red wave is fully on the docket here. Um, along with that, you know, I mentioned Kamala Harris having a poll where her approval rating was at 28%. Uh, that same one, uh, and I think it was the USA Today poll, it showed Joe Biden's approval rating sitting at 38%. Now, going into the the November elections for 2021, um, the, his poll averages on approval were sitting around 42%. Uh, so now we're seeing sub-40 numbers for Joe Biden, and he's continuing to lose more steam here. I don't think infrastructure is going to change that. Maybe he gets a small bump from that. Um, but given that the infrastructure vote happened late on a Friday and absolutely no one's going to care what happens late on a Friday, I just don't see that having any political benefit at all. So you're seeing um, Democrats get really, really hammered here, and the end of their House and Senate majorities are, are looking like they're soon on the horizon because it is very difficult to win in, a, in an environment like this. It's not impossible Republicans could obviously choose bad candidates. You could have, you know, bad things happen in some of these individual races. You know, nothing's for sure. Um, And that certainly happened in 2010 through 2014, where Republicans would put up these really dumb candidates and they would just lose because they were no good. Um, As long as Republicans have quality candidates in each one of these races, they stand a chance to do extremely well. If the voting public sees you as that generic Republican or maybe sees you something better than a generic Republican, you're going to perform well in this environment. If you cannot and they see you as worse, then you're just kind of up to the mercy of the crowd on that one. So in any event, the elections were very, very good for Republicans. 
Which brings us to the House vote on infrastructure and the the upcoming vote we're going to have on the Build Back Better plan, which is the big Democratic social spending plan. So on the the big vote was on the House infrastructure plan, and the House actually held a vote. We actually had a true infrastructure week where the House voted for this. And basically what happened is that the, the progressives caved. They the they gave up basically their, their leverage over trying to keep these two bills linked. They settled for moderates saying promising in a statement that they if you know they would vote on the Build Back Better plan if the that thing if that piece of legislation got scoring from the Congressional Budget Office. That was effectively the only promise that they gave here. So as long as the Congressional Budget Office gives a favorable scoring to this legislation, they've promised, they haven't promised to vote for it, although that is effectively what they've done here, you're going to get a vote on this legislation. So the thing to remember here is that 218 votes are needed, and they were needed both on the infrastructure and they'll be needed on the, on the big social spending thing, and Democrats have a small majority. So going into that infrastructure vote, right off the top, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her squad uh, members, there are six in total, all voted against that bill and even said so out front that they were not going to be voting for the infrastructure package. So going into that vote, we knew pretty clearly that, that Nancy Pelosi did not have the votes. The only way to get that thing to pass before they even went to the floor was to have Republican votes. And that's exactly what Nancy Pelosi got. She needed a handful to offset those six, and she got 13. So there were reports that she was walking around with with a secret whip list. That secret whip list was, obviously, it had to deal with Republicans. And she was able to, to snatch out 13 Republican votes there. Now, it's not that there wasn't a reason not to vote for the infrastructure passage. Back three months ago, about four months ago now, um, 19 Republican senators voted for this thing. There's plenty of you know ideological and, and personal reasoning for your state to vote for this thing because there's there's just good stuff in there and that people on both sides get there. There's a reason they called it the bipartisan infrastructure framework. There was bipartisan agreement on doing it. What had changed were the politics. When it passed the Senate, the infrastructure framework was not linked to the big Democratic social spending plan, the BBB. In the House, progressives linked the two together, which made the infrastructure deal almost a no-go for Republicans for the get-go. It made it significantly harder to push through. But then the politics changed. Instead of being able to hold that vote, that piece of legislation hostage, progressives caved because the elections and the looming election results. It was very clear a week out that Democrats were panicking. I wrote this in columns. I I suggested it in my newsletter. Democrats were panicking because they believed they were going to lose, and all of a sudden we got a real fire lit under everyone to come to some kind of general agreement to get these things across the board and to get them across the finish line. So, you know, what changed and what got these Republicans to vote for it? Uh, Well, some of them were Republicans who are in um, districts that Joe Biden won in 2020. And so they're looking forward and saying, I've got to survive here. So being able to to work both sides of the aisle here helps me out politically. That's the first thing interesting. You just have a few of those people who are like that. Uh, Some of them are leaving Congress. So you have... uh, uh, Kinzinger out of out of Illinois, he got gerrymandered out. 
He's not going to win again because Democrats made his district effectively a Democratic one, and he's not going to bother running again because he would lose. He would lose a Republican primary, and he would lose the general election, so he is retiring, and he is already effectively an MSNBC conservative. He, you know, he doesn't have any future in the party, so he's basically staying relevant. And there are, there are rumors that he's going to run for governor or maybe something else in a statewide race, which he he just won't win. I'd be shocked if he made any noise there because he's alienated everyone in his own party. So that's the second reason there. You have people who are leaving. So you have you have people who live in Biden's districts. You have you have people who are leaving, and then you just have people. You have Republicans who are like John McCain's. They 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 they're bad at politics. They're bad at reading the moment, and they just kind of go with what they think they need to do, even though everyone is screaming them that the politics in this situation were very very. Obvious, they had changed since the Senate had voted on this, and for Republicans, the goal was to force Democrats to prove that they had the votes to do this, and they very obviously didn't. So Republicans, instead, those who voted for this for whatever reason that they had, stepped into the place of the the squad here and played their role in pushing it across the finish line. So in just in terms of pure party politics here, it was a very, very dumb move by those Republicans because you could have forced Democrats into a bind. Um, by because if you keep if you even if you wanted this together, if you voted against it here, you would have forced Democrats back to the drawing board of trying to figure out how they were going to get these two pieces of legislation through. And there's just no, you've made it effectively easier here to pass both pieces of legislation by doing this. So it's just, it's very bad politics. It's very bad planning. And frankly, it's going to put, well, this is going to be one of my my later points, but it, it puts... Andy, not Andy McCarthy, it puts um, Kevin McCarthy, the current GOP leader, in a pretty bad situation. He is very badly damaged at the moment, and he's got to prove that he can. He needs to be the Speaker of the House, even though he cannot control his own caucus. He could not drive these very basic homes through. And I always assumed there are going to be some Republicans in the House that are going to vote for this, just because, you know, if all things were e- equal, you'd have seen probably, you know, close to half the caucus vote for this if the politics didn't matter. But the politics mattered. And he could not whip his caucus and get them together on that one key point. He didn't even force, you know, the Democrats to show how many votes they had. So this was just a failure all around. And one of the reasons that, we, that this has come to this, and you see the hard left caving, you see moderates moving different over there, is because Democrats believe their majority is coming to an end. Um, there's no new legislation coming next year because people aren't going to support it, and there's just nothing that's going to come to save them. So they believe this is all coming to an end. Um, you know, they're trying to save some face here by getting that CBO scoring to say they did something. But ultimately, I believe that the moderates are going to cave on this big social spending plan because your option is to vote against it and vote against your party, which is going to hurt you in any primary if you're going into a tough election year. Or it's to vote for it and you just face the tough general election, which is coming anyway. Um, you know, some of them are probably going to vote against it because they think it'll save them. But Odds are you're just going to vote for it and say, I'm just going to hold my nose, do this. It'll get me through the primary, and then we can figure out where to go from there. If I'm going to lose, I might as well go out, you know, having passed something. 
So that's kind of where, you know, kind of where we're headed here. Where you're seeing the politics of this change, you're seeing, in the the case of Republicans, just bad reading of the moment. And if Democrats, they're just getting desperate here. They're desperate to get anything to occur here. So, um, and it comes to, you know, what's going to happen on the Republican side, I I, I do think you're going to see a serious challenge here to Kevin McCarthy because this is now the second or third vote where it was imperative of him to whip his caucus into shape and to get them to do something, and he couldn't do so. Um, he does not seem to have the confidence of his caucus. And with, you know, 40 to 50, I mean, low end, you're probably talking 30. High end, as many as maybe 60 new Republicans come in. He's got to get them in shape. And if he can't do that, you know, you've got to get new leadership. And I think you're going to see that. I also think with these 13 Republicans, uh, for those who you can primary, I think you're going to see them all get primaried. And, you know, I've seen some suggestions where, you know, this is just a temper tantrum thing and there's no way you can primary some of these people. And that is true of some of them. But in a year where things are already going to be pushing maybe 12 to 14 points in Republicans' favor, um, those primaries could been very powerful. You have to remember, in 2010, the Tea Party swept in and were knocking out deep red people, people who had deep connections with the Republican Party, and the Tea Party was primarying them and kicking them out. That can and, you know, sometimes will happen here. So I don't think you can just hand wave this way and say, oh, you know, they're, they're not going to win. You know, these are races in, in certain states and, and you know, no, no more you know, conservative person could win here. It takes the person who's in there. That may be true in most years, but in a wave year, all bets are off because you don't know what's going to happen. So that's sort of the recap. Um, you know, in the coming weeks and you know, week, days and weeks as we're heading towards this next vote here, look out for the CBO scoring. Start watching for Democratic retirements. I think we're going to start getting some of them. It wouldn't shock me, actually, if Nancy Pelosi was one of those. Um, if she stays on and gets reelected, she's going to have to give up the speaker's gavel again, and that would make her, I think, the only only the second speaker to ever have to give up the gavel twice. Uh, that's something she doesn't want to do, I don't believe. So it wouldn't shock me if she's one of them. Um, we're getting to this point here where we, they're going to have to start making some decisions here. And one of the things that made decision is going to be make some of these decisions are, is the redistricting that's happening. So we don't fully know how that's going to take place. Um, but we've got more and more states who are issuing more and more of their maps, and that's going to decide a lot of things moving forward. So look for those retirements. Uh, watch for the primaries. That's going to be more of a first of the year, early Q1 type time when some of this stuff's going to go going through. So there's going to be a lot of changes here. There's going to be a huge turnover in Congress, it looks like, and the elections are all favoring Republicans. So that's that's pretty much all I've got for this week. Uh, I don't have a light item segment because I was up <laughs> late watching the Titans demolish the Los Angeles Rams. That was obviously a good game if you're me or a Titans fan. Uh, so I don't really I didn't have time to go track down a, a light item for this week. So you know if you got your questions, comments, questions, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the content information of the show notes and or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Uh, that Twitter feed is pretty much just a, tw- uh, a, a Titans propaganda account at this point. Or if you follow me during the World Series, just a ton of brave stuff. So uh, a lot of sports stuff happening there. 
Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.